Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back for another week of chatting about nursing and healthcare through the telling of true crime stories and other news stories. And FYI, for those of you who are new to this podcast, this is sort of a chit chat podcast. We talk, we chit chat about things because as we're going through these stories, it will sort of bring up little, what I like to call Tina tangents. And we get kind of go off talking about maybe a, a different topic. So, if you don't like, if that's not for you, maybe, you know, this isn't the podcast for you, but that's just FYI putting that out there for you. This week, I'm joined by a wonderful nurse who has accomplished so many amazing things in her career. She's absolutely fascinating to follow on social media, full of wisdom and insight, and that's just immeasurable. And I would like to welcome Ernice Williams, or as she is known on social media, in the social media world, your nurse lawyer. Ernice, welcome to the show. Thank you. So excited to be here. After we get through the bad nurse story, we're going to feature you in the good nurse segment. And I'm so excited to get to tell our listeners. We have a lot. We have lots of nursing students that listen and new grads and all kinds of well, different various nurses that listen to this podcast who I know are fascinated as mm-hmm. I am to hear you talk about transitioning from being a nurse to a lawyer and that whole mm-hmm. world. I'm very excited to share. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash goodnurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So this story is going to center on the stories of two families who are demanding transparency in healthcare practices, following the level of care that their loved ones received. Now, we're not trying to unfavorably portray any sort of healthcare professionals, especially nurse practitioners, because I totally believe in nurse practitioners and physician assistants and their roles. And I believe they do play a vital role. But what we're trying to do is just bring awareness to families' experiences and just generate discussion about this. So having said that, Betty 
Wattenberger was a seven-year-old girl who brought so much joy to her family. She was autistic and primarily nonverbal. So in 2019, she developed a fever and demonstrated other signs of being physically ill. So her pediatrician's office was unable to see her right away. So as a result, her family arranged for her to be seen at a pediatric urgent care center in Denton, Texas. So her parents were told that she had a strain of the flu and she was released from their care. Now, according to the parents' account of events, Healthcare professionals listened to her lungs, and they did not hear any sort of abnormalities. Her condition got worse overnight, and by the morning, she actually fell in the shower. Having already taken her to a provider and having her seen, I, I totally can understand why they would do this, because if you have already taken your child and had them checked out by someone just the day before, it would... I could see how you might dismiss an incident like this as just weakness associated with having been diagnosed with the flu. And so they tried to tend to her as best they could. So they laid her down to rest and returned to the room moments later and found her head hanging off the pillow and blood coming out of her mouth. So they rushed her to the nearest emergency room, but the doctors were unable to get her to breathe and her heart stopped. So an autopsy revealed that she had sepsis and streptococcal pneumonia. So her father, Jeremy Wattenberger, explained that it was likely that Betty was in the early stages of sepsis while she was seen at the urgent care. So the autopsy also concluded that she had approximately a third of a cup of fluid in her left lung. So Jeremy Wattenberger expressed that Betty's ailments should have been properly diagnosed at the urgent care center. The family believed that Betty was being seen by a doctor, but was actually treated and diagnosed by a nurse practitioner. Her medical records were sent to Dr. Amy Townsend, who was a family practice doctor and a member um, on the board of advocacy group Physicians for Patient Protection. And Dr. Townsend noted that Betty's heart rate that was 170, and low oxygen saturation levels were cause for concern, and any physician would have ensured that the child was sent to the ER and admitted to the hospital. So in Texas, nurse practitioners can diagnose, treat, and prescribe medications if they are under a doctor's supervision. I think that's like that in most states, Ernie's. So 25 Guam and D.C. states are now, nurse practitioners have independent practice authority. So yes, if they are working under a physician in all 50 states plus D.C. or Guam, they can work and diagnose and prescribe. There are some restrictions on what type of prescriptions and certain things that they can sign for. And that's, of course, state by state, which which it varies. Well, and I will say that, of course, we're telling the story from the from articles that we have found online. So it's as I'm saying these things, I don't necessarily agree with everything that I'm reading, but I'm having to tell this from the from the perspective of the person that's writing the article who had firsthand maybe accounts of conversations. So it's a little difficult for me because I have my opinions about things, but then I also don't want to misrepresent someone else's view. And I don't want to disrespect the father by not including how he felt about the situation. Of course. I think in any concern, when we're talking about patient complaints, patient concerns, patient outcomes, 
a patient's perspective has to be taken into account because what happened with the practitioner and whatever was seen in that moment could completely vary from what the perception of the parent who was in distress, who is dealing with a child, who has their own developmental issues as well as physical issues. And now they have this all of a sudden symptoms that they can't necessarily discuss or uh, describe themselves, right? The child may not be able to express how they're feeling to make it make sense for the practitioner to have even deeper concern or the family to have deeper concern. And so this is why it's important for patients and families to be empowered to continue to ask questions if they're not feeling like they're getting the care that they deserve because they are the people who know themselves or their family members best. And we have to not give off the perception that we know everything because we don't. And it's really important for patients and their families to say, okay, but what about this? And what about that? And if you're not getting clear explanations for those things to seek care somewhere else. And I think that's the issue is that they trusted the practitioner, um, the provider so much that they didn't ask additional questions or question what was being said back to them because they felt that the the physician or the, well, this in this point, the nurse practitioner was doing what was best for them, which was advising them to go home. And I think sometimes when people say, I would send that person to the ED or that person would get admitted, we also have to take into account whatever's going on. This was 2019, so COVID wasn't in play. But just because your child is symptomatic doesn't mean that your child's going to be admitted if you go through the ER, right? Urgent care gets you seen a lot quicker, a lot sooner. Going to the ER, most people don't go because of the delays and because sometimes they are dismissed and now you have a copay and you're spending a lot of money. And so when we talk about the barriers to care, we need to be able to identify the reasons why urgent cares or other systems and means are in place, but also what happens when people try to go the right route, right? So if they said, okay, you know, I don't agree. I'm going to go to the ED, but they go to the ED and they said, oh, you just saw someone in urgent care. What did they say in urgent care? And they agree with them and move forward. So the assumption that if I do X, then Y is going to happen isn't always true. And I think we need to be careful when we're imposing these standards of care to say this was this would have happened this way if the if it had happened differently, because we know that's not always true. Well, and I think also the even the physician that looked at the records afterwards, I'm sure had the benefit of hindsight and could have said, oh, I would have done this or this should have happened when maybe it's hard to put themselves in the position of what they really would have done had they not under, had they not known what the ultimate outcome was. But I can understand and definitely empathize with the family. And I, I went to nursing school when I was like 40 years old. And I raised my children in a world where I thought that physicians, if you were a physician, that you, I was going to get the highest level of care. That at, once I became a nurse and started working at the bedside and working alongside both physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants, I realized that providers come in all different degrees and areas of expertise and levels of skill and experience. And the letters after your name really doesn't have anything to do with your abilities. It's really more about you, your experience and what you've done. And so it's you could definitely have a nurse practitioner who who doesn't maybe know as much as they should and and isn't it as good at their job as other people. But you could also have a medical doctor or a DO who, same way, maybe they just um, haven't had enough experience or don't apply themselves as they should, don't read up on the latest evidence-based practice. And you could have 
physicians and and other providers that make the same mistakes. Yeah, I think when we um, point out I, issues that happen in healthcare, it's not about portraying the entire system, the entire profession as good or bad. I think what we're pointing out is that there are some issues that happen and how can we improve the process? Improving the process would have made sure that her pediatrician had slots open for urgent care situations because they did what they were supposed to do. They called their pediatrician. Anytime I've ever had to call my pediatrician because my child was not behaving in the way that I thought was normal and I was concerned, they had a slot for me at either the same day or soon after. And so I'm really concerned that the fact that we are blaming the person who does not see that patient every single day, the person who essentially is just doing what they know based on the circumstances presented, which is appropriate and may have not been as deeply concerned, right? Heart rate that high could also come from someone being restless, for someone being very nervous and anxious, being in a a healthcare system with, with autism can be anxiety inducing for some children. Understandably, of course, maybe the vitals may probably should have been taken a few different times. They should have probably waited and maybe taken it three times to see if the heart rate was going to come down. There, there's so many different things and so many different scenarios that we can take into consideration. I think that discussing patient care issues, malpractice concerns, isn't one that is um, a reflection of everyone in the profession, but it's truly an ability for us to decide how we can become better and safeguard both patients and providers from having to endure the stress that comes with having to, you know, deal with this type of bad outcome. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that there was no actual doctor that was required to be on site was particularly concerning to the family. And they believed that Texas law should be amended to require constant on-site supervision by a doctor. So they actually filed medical malpractice lawsuit against the Pediatric Urgent Care Center for alleged misdiagnosis and gross negligence. And so the defense, the defendants, a legal team, deny, of course, the allegations. And in a release statement, they indicated that, quote, appropriate care was provided and Betty's death was caused by, quote, pre-existing health conditions. So first of all, this is obviously a horribly, horribly tragic story. And my heart goes out to the parents of this child. What happened to her was awful, and I in no way want to minimize the pain and anguish suffered by Betty or her family. But this episode is also about shining a light on the subjects of nurse practitioners and their scope of practice. So the fact is, for every tragic situation we can find like this where an NP made a mistake or even was negligent, we can find countless others who are well-respected among their physician colleagues and have excellent reputations and patient outcomes. In fact, research actually shows that nurse practitioners can provide about 90% of primary care services commonly provided by physicians with at least comparable outcomes and at a lower cost. And I think that we have to take into consideration that the reason that the position of a nurse practitioner was created was to help fill that gap, was to help fill the gap of a more skilled nurse, but of someone who is not trained as long as a physician to care for the community, right? That's what they're here for. That's what they're trained to do is to provide the care in places that it doesn't exist or there's a lack thereof. And even in places where there are tons of physician offices and tons of nurse practitioners, many of them are so booked up that you can barely get into 
to actually get a new patient appointment for some of them. And so I am really, I think that we don't, we shouldn't be concerned about discussing these problems. I think that I'm the kind of person like, let's bring it all out. Let's talk about these things. Let's decide how we're going to move forward and bring about best practices because that's what physicians do, right? We forget that physicians talk about their malpractice cases at conferences. They bring these things to the light and they make the adjustments that they need to make to ensure that it doesn't happen again. But in reality, 93 to 94% of all malpractice cases comes from physicians and it really doesn't come from acute care. It comes from specialty care. So ortho, you know, neuro, a lot of surgical cases, a lot of surgeons end up in malpractice suits because of the care, of course, labor and delivery, OBGYNs and things of that nature as well. And so I want people to be cautious of their in their practice, but I also want you to be confident in your practice because what you do is important. If we say, you know what, nurse practitioners aren't great and we should get rid of them, what would that do to those who they serve? It would destroy communities. It would really leave communities without. And if you look at the states that have expanded full practice authority, you can see that their care has improved as they have expanded and allowed more nurse practitioners to see patients because nurse practitioners end up operating businesses in their community, practices in their community. They're not in big or health or hospital systems. And so that allows them to serve more people in a place, whether it's even through, I know people are like, oh, medical aesthetics and all those things. If someone wants that and that's what someone desires, then that's what they deserve. And if that's who they want to go to see it, then that's what's most important because people may not be ready for plastic surgery yet. They may not be at a point where they feel like that. They they can't take the downtime of some of the, the surgical procedures that are required. And so to take all of those things into consideration, especially during the pandemic where we've expanded how patients can be seen and offering more telemedicine. In states that have not expanded full practice authority, their outcomes, where they stand, I live here in Georgia, Georgia is 48 for mental health. They refuse to allow nurse practitioners to see patients via telemedicine. They can only have one provider for four nurse practitioners, knowing that there is a deficit of 350,000 people who need mental health care. So if we're saying physicians only, knowing that we have a shortage of psychiatrists, knowing that we have a shortage of those who can actually prescribe medications, most primary health care healthcare providers do not want to provide mental health care. They don't want to refill prescriptions. They don't want to have to manage the care that comes with being on some of those prescriptions. And they don't want to have to do the consistent follow-up that comes with patients being on medications for their mental health. So we can't say that we have a problem and the problem is the people when the nurse practitioners are the people who are solving problems for our everyday community. Absolutely. And research also indicates that nurse practitioners score consistently higher in patient satisfaction, patient compliance, health promotion, and disease prevention. That's huge. That's huge. Many physicians also agree that nurse practitioners are a great addition to a clinic. They can, quote, pay for themselves and they reduce the physician workload. I think we will eventually get to a conversation where we're working together and it's not an if or either or, it's a both and, right? I do think there are so many things that we need physicians for. We really need them to be leading research. We need them to be leading new treatments. We need them to be doing search. We need them and we need them in primary care as well because there are many complex patients out there who maybe are not appropriate for a nurse practitioner to see. So there is room for that. But I think we have to stop saying that 
giving patients access to nurse practitioners, it means that they're getting less care when we know that's not true. And we know that physicians and the rate of in which providers are graduating from medical school, getting into residency, graduating from residency or fellowship is just not happening in a timely fashion to care for the amount of people that need to be cared for. Yeah, absolutely. And I said that we had two stories. So our second story is about a 19-year-old sophomore, Alexis Dawkins. She was an honor student and basketball player at El Reno, in El Reno, Oklahoma. She complained one day of having chest pains and not being able to breathe. So she was rushed to the ER at Mercy El Reno Hospital, where her family thought that she was under the care, once again, of a doctor. And Amy Dawkins, Amy Alexis's mother, stated that there were that they were approached by a woman who introduced herself as the attending physician. If that happened, that's definitely a major no-no, obviously. The woman informed the family that Alexis was okay, but she would need to remain in the hospital for observation. Alexis's condition worsened over the next few hours, and it was determined that she had been suffering from a pulmonary embolism. So the condition would ultimately claim her life, and after her daughter passed, it was later discovered that the woman who initially proclaimed to be a physician was actually a nurse practitioner. The Dawkins family sued for medical malpractice for negligent credentialing on the grounds that the family nurse practitioner should never have been permitted to treat acutely or critically ill patients. So they won the lawsuit, and then Dr. Niran Al-Agba, a, pedi- a pediatrician outside of Seattle, claims that Alexis's death was a direct result of corporate greed, and he has written a book with the intentions to expose a, quote, vast conspiracy of political maneuvering and corporate greed that has led to the replacement of qualified medical professionals by lesser trained practitioners. Yeah, I think that's sad because waging a war on an entire profession because of minimal outcomes is very hypocritical when 94% of medical malpractice cases are happening by physicians. And many of the outcomes are consistently happening by some of the same providers. There are many providers that have multiple lawsuits, have multiple complaints, multiple malpractice claims, including physicians in some very well-known cases, and nobody is raging a war on them. The medical board on their website, they don't even inquire about certain medical malpractice claims if it's below a certain amount of money. And so There may be multiple claims against your physician and they will be licensed. They will be able to practice. They lose nothing despite of the care and the outcome. And so to wage a war on such a small percentage of providers, a small percentage of providers who actually have malpractice claims, and a small percentage of providers who are providing care in a community of need shows that the hierarchy and the desire for physicians who work in some of these institutions to maintain or retain this power dynamic is is not fair because there are many physicians in the community who are saying, we need help. We need to alleviate some of the pressure. I've worked at a place where we had nurse practitioners and physicians, and it was an amazing relationship because the nurse practitioners were able to see a lot of patients. And then when things became too complicated, they were able to send them over to some of the physicians. The physicians then were able to do other aspects of community care for our patients that allowed our numbers to change. So we were able to improve our outcomes because those physicians could work on specific projects for immunizations or for diabetes to make sure that the outcomes that we were desiring were actually happening. And so we should be working together 
to improve patient care and patient care outcomes. But I think it's unfair for nurse practitioners as well as for physicians to have to bear the brunt of all patients out there knowing that it's impossible, which means that the less of us those who are marginalized and in communities that are consistently oppressed will will not be able to receive the care that they deserve because they don't have access. So if you are saying that we nurse practitioners should not have all of this autonomy, knowing that most ner- physicians don't want to serve as a medical director for these nurse practitioners, right, putting them in the position to be trained, educated, and and able license but not able to practice is just a very unfair just an unfair perspective for him to take and I really am disappointed that so many physicians have such a strong stance on this knowing that the physicians that are out here actually doing the work in the community cannot do it alone and they can't simply take on more just because you don't want nurse practitioners to be able to practice this way. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a solution to just say, let's get rid of an entire segment of providers that's clearly providing actually excellent care to our community um, because you can cherry pick a few incidences where, and we just completely ignore all of the other incidences. It's so easy to take a case that happened to involve a nurse practitioner of, you know, maybe that, that was misdiagnosis. It's so easy to then say, oh, it's because they were a nurse practitioner, as opposed to looking at the situation and say, it could be anyone. It could have been a medical doctor that made the same mistake. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis, so now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC-free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. It's May, and you know what that means. Nurses Week is coming up. And Echo loves their nurses so much that they decided to amplify Nurses Week and turn it into Nurses Month. They're celebrating nurses all month long to show their appreciation and support for our contributions to healthcare. So in honor of Nurses Month, they are giving away a grand prize of $1,000 toward a trip of your choice. They know that nurses are some of the hardest working people in healthcare, so they want to give us a chance to take some time to relax on them. First place will be a $1,000 gift card toward a trip of your choice. 
Second place is a $500 gift card towards a flight of your choice. Third through fifth place will be $50 SpaFinder.com gift cards. Submitters can also mention at Echo Health and hashtag Amplify Nurses in an Instagram post for a chance to win instant prizes throughout the month of May. Winners are going to be announced June 6, 2022. You can submit to the sweepstakes at echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. You know, the amplification of Echo Core is something I've come to rely on every day that I work at the bedside. With 40 times amplification and active noise cancellation, the 3M Litman Core Digital Stethoscope is becoming the go-to stethoscope for nurses all over the country. So go to echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. That's echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. Well, his concern is that nurse practitioners might not have the full uh, scope of training that physicians receive, but they're ultimately performing the same job as physicians. And he said that a key difference between the two positions is the amount of clinical training hours. So a physician will complete 6,000 hours in medical school and then nine to 10,000 hours during residency. And whereas a nurse practitioner might only complete 500 to 1,500 clinical hours with no residency required. So the American, Nurse, uh, American Association of Nurse Practitioners and the American Medical Association have taken opposing stances on supervision versus independence. So when the AANP was asked, they support full practice authority for NPs. And the president, Sophia Thomas, cited recommendations from the Federal Trade Commission, the National Academy of Medicine, and the National Governors Association. She said they all recommend nurse practitioners who have full practice authority because they know and understand that nurse practitioner practice and clinical outcomes are equal to our physician colleagues and NPs improve access to care, as you were saying. So the the American Medical Association opposes this perspective and summarizes their views in the report entitled Physician-Led Healthcare Teams that, quote, nurses are indispensable, but they cannot take the place of a fully trained physician. Amy Dawkins, the mother in this case, stated that she is not opposed to NPs in healthcare, but she is against people performing outside of, quote, their scope. And there's been some research conducted on, quote, knowing your limits or as knowing, quote, their scope, as she said, and nurse practitioner independence. So the physicians that participated in this case study were overall supportive and comfortable with high levels of nurse practitioner independence. Nurse practitioners had positive opinions on the level of independence granted, but also valued the option of having a physician close by to consult as needed, as you were talking about. So while most physicians did agree that on having a physician accessible to ensure patient safety and perceived gaps in nurse practitioner training, the definition of supervised varied. So one physician said that being, quote, in the same office constituted as direct supervision to her. Knowing that they don't see every patient or going to review every chart. Come on. Yeah. So just because you're on the premises that what good does that do if you're seeing multiple patients coming? You know, you, you, you we've all seen these urgent care clinics and you have they're full of patients and they're trying to fit more in because people are calling desperately needing to get in. And so if you have nurse practitioners and then one physician on site, do you th- honestly think that one physician is going to be able to look at every single case? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I do feel that as a practice and as a profession, we should put some standards in in place to ensure and to make not to say make other people feel comfortable but just just 
to just solidify the process. And I think that going through nursing school, what makes you a nurse isn't the fact that you just attended, but that you go through the process, which is nursing school, and then you go and you take your NCLEX, but you look at the different types of nurses, and if you see nurses who had a strong residency program and nurses who didn't, and I'm talking about after they received the job and now they're just working you know, and learning more, there is a huge gap. You see nurses who only had two to three weeks of training and then nurses who who have had a year worth of support, whether that's clinical or not. And so I do feel that there needs to be some transparency in the type of training that nurse practitioners are receiving so that people can understand the value. If it's 500 hours, but is it 500 hours specifically on this type of care that's going to be provided? And then they're qualified for that care and any other additional care that they seek to provide, they get additional training on, which is true, right? So a lot of nurse practitioners do family nurse practitioner, and then they go back and they get their psychiatric MP, which is more training, more hours, and more work. But with the lack of transparency in how nurse practitioners are navigating the system, it does feel in a way that people are just getting thrown out there. And I think that some schools that are essentially allowing nurses to come into their programs without having any experience is diluting the process, unfortunately. And I know a lot of people have very strong opinions on that, but it is because as a nurse, if your next level is to become a nurse practitioner, you should be doing that based on the experience that you have, not just based on your credentials. And so people can feel how they want about that. And they can say, hey, I went straight through and I'm a great practitioner. I do think that's fine. But if we're trying to actually uplift the profession, which we've been trying to do for so long, which is the, the purpose of have, right? Ac- gaining access to the DMP programs that were created a, a few, maybe like 20 years ago, less maybe less than that because I've been a nurse for 14 years and the DMP was very new when I was a new nurse. The purpose of that was to uplift the profession so that we could prove that the value that we were offering equates to the care that we're providing and the outcomes that we desire. Without that consistency, without there actually having to be some solidified national recommendation on how nurses should essentially become nurse practitioners, how many hours they need to work, how many clinical hours they need to have, and what type of training they need to provide the care that they are. I can see how there are questions because it varies in so many ways. And I'm not saying that you are a bad practitioner if you went straight through, but I can see how a physician who went to undergrad, medical school, residency, fellowship, all of these things to care for the patients that they care for. And you went to an undergrad program and then went to an MP program. And then you are now caring for patients and you've never actually cared for patients before. How the the questions can be, be, you know, start to come up. I think if we have transparency in the process and we really understand what nurse practitioners are learning, and then once they learn those things, what they're then qualified to do and the amount of hours, and if we somehow were able to not make it just transparent, but even uniform across the board, it does make it easier for people to accept the fact that nurse practitioners are doing great things because I think that they are. I do feel that before these programs were created where people were able to go straight through from becoming an RN to MP, I don't think that that people were as opposed. I do feel that independent practice authority 
was coming a lot quicker and faster because nurse practitioners were working and then they were going to MP school and then they were coming back to serve the community. What changed in the conversation and the shift happened when programs started to create different options that really didn't have a requirement of how long you had to work or how long you had to be a practicing RN or even a nurse if you were essentially like an LPN, not an LPN, but an ADN to go through. Before those programs existed, I don't feel that there were as many questions. I felt that people were very comfortable with what nurse practitioners were doing. And I do feel like in those previous years, independent practice authority was coming a lot faster, but the pushback has now become people are just getting thrown out into the fields. And I can see that there can be some concerns if we don't speak up and advocate for ourselves in a way that shows that we know what we're doing or nurse practitioners know what they're doing. Well, I definitely agree with that because stop and think about this for just a minute. A lot of people that listen to this are practicing nurses. There, there's all different types of people, a whole lot of people that are practicing nurses. Nurses, How many of you have been working at the bedside at a hospital that's a teaching institution where you have residents coming fresh out of medical school? They just finished four years of medical school. And now I worked at a te- teaching institution for seven years. I worked right alongside in ICU, right alongside brand new baby residents that would come right out of of medical school on two wheels into the parking lot and just rush right in and start taking care of patients. I think that most physicians would tell you that right out of medical school, they are absolutely not ready to start taking care of patients. They, it's, it's a, and I know from working for, with residents from their first year to their second year, to their third year, to their fourth year, Oh my gosh, by the time you get to that fourth year, they're so confident. I have more confidence in them. They have built up a reputation of being skilled and knowledgeable, and they've learned so much just working in the different environments. And yet they still are still new. And they have four years of residency working right inside of a hospital, right alongside physicians, prescribing and treating patients at the bedside, working with nurses. They learn so much, and yet they're still new. And so stop and think about, compare that to someone who gets a four-year degree, maybe a, a nurse, uh, a bachelor of science in nursing, and then they don't spend any time at the bedside. They get no clinical experience other than the little bit of clinical experience you get in a bachelor's program, which is basically a CNA program. So then you go to two years of nurse practitioner school and you get very few clinical hours there which I think a lot of nurse practitioners would tell you, they coming out of that, they're not ready to audit. They don't know anything. How can you go to two years of nurse practitioner school and think that you are ready to just start working, taking care of patients when a, a physician who went through four years of medical school is not ready? And I, I just experienced that. So I know that there's just no way. I mean, but I think it's not even about being ready or how you feel because some people have an insane amount of confidence and they should. But I also think that people forget about the relationships that come with working over time. So of all the places that I've worked, there are still people who I have relationships with. If I needed a surgery and I needed to get on someone's schedule because I was struggling, I could pick up the phone and call quite a few nurses that I used to work with in the OR and get the help that I need. If I was in a situation where I needed advice on hospice, I've worked for many hospice companies, I can make some phone calls and get some information that I need. We forget the relationships and the information that we learn as nurses. I think I worked in the OR. 
I worked alongside surgeons who were amazing teachers. They taught me so much, not about being a physician, not about being a nurse, but about the human body, about how you recognize and identify if this is going to have a good outcome or not. How? What do you do when someone has a bad outcome? The conversations that we had helped me mature as a person. And so I think sometimes we focus a lot on the clinical skills and not really on the ability to communicate with patients, the ability to address issues when you're wrong, the ability to be able to identify errors. Like that comes over time. That comes with the knowledge of being around someone who's been doing it so long that it's just in their in their blood. So you lose out on the mentorship that could come with working in a place because even at the bedside when I worked on a teleunit, we had a cardiologist who would come and just sit down and just explain not just different medications, how to read strips. He would talk about just so many things that were outside of the just being a nurse. And to me, the nurses and nurse practitioners who have those that type of experience, they talk differently, they think differently because you're not operating just from a knowledge perspective when it comes to the, the skills that you gained as a student. You actually have real life practical experiences so that you can understand the nuances of what is happening in someone's life. Because we always think that being a better the best practitioner comes with time, but being the best practitioner comes with communication. And if you have not practiced how to communicate with CNAs, with other nurses, with other medical providers, you may find it more difficult to get the information that you need so that you can make the best decisions. I think 99% of people, they'll be fine. They'll figure it out over time. They will get better. But if you really truly want to be the best, sometimes you need to stop and think about what makes you better, right? I've been a lawyer for seven years. I didn't want to work on my own because I felt that I needed a lawyer behind me to tell me what to do. A lot of lawyers are coming out and we and I have to start our own practice because we're having a hard time finding jobs. And even in that, are people saying, do I really want to stand up and, and do a criminal defense against some a seasoned prosecutor as a new lawyer? Most people don't. And that's why people work under someone to get that support. And so as much as I love nursing, I understand the correlation because we're seeing the same thing in the legal world where people are getting thrown out to have to care, right, for their, their clients and essentially have their lives in their hands without the support. So we're saying less school and more, we want more clinical hours. We want more hours to actually do the work, to practice the things that we're going to do in the real world with the support of someone so that we have that mentorship instead of saying sitting in front of a book and actually sitting in front of a computer is going to teach me how to be the best lit, you know, litigator out there, which isn't true. And so I don't think that we have to even pinpoint this just on nurses and nurse practitioners. I think that there's a lot of people, a lot of industries that are coming into this world where people are being pushed out to make big real world decisions and they're not getting the opportunity to work under people who have the wisdom to help them navigate some of the potential challenges. And so for people, you make the decision that is best for you. If you feel like you want to go from RN straight through MP and be independent and because you're in an independent practice authority state, that's fine. As a lawyer, I'm always going to tell you, understand your risk, understand your liabilities, understand how you mitigate your risk and understand how you mitigate your liabilities. Never put yourself in a position where people can throw something against you where they say, okay, you now they're going to look back at your career, look back at your background for every decision that you've made because you decided this is how you wanted to go. Be comfortable with that. But you can be that, say you go straight through, but now you're getting a lot of additional training. Be transparent in the process because there are some Physicians who go to school, they get the training and they may do whatever they need to do just to renew their license, but they're not actually invested in learning more and doing more 
most of them, why they have bad outcomes isn't because they're bad practitioners. It's because they have bad communication. It's because they have bad bedside manner. And so I think that nurses are great at a lot of things. And I think that we need to be able to speak to that. But we want to also make sure that we're being clear on how we're being trained to be able to care for people's lives, right? It's easy to say that you're taking care of someone, but you want to make sure that the outcome that you're having is the outcome that's desired. When I worked at a FQHC, there were times where we were not doing well on our quality metrics. But I had to explain to my staff, a quality metric is a number given to us by the government. But the actual outcome on the other side is someone's life is getting better. Someone's hemoglobin A1C being tested appropriately as required and it going down means that they are now having more control over their health and less likely to end up in the hospital. So the way we view things may be from the perspective of checkboxes, like, okay, I've done these things, but we really have to look at the outcomes. Who deserves the best care? Everybody. And how do we make sure that we deserve, that people get the best care, that they have access to people who are well-trained and prepared to see the things that they're going to see in their communities? And so I know this probably will be very controversial. I am a huge supporter of nurse practitioners working in independent practice authority states. I am advocating here in Georgia for for nurse practitioners to get um, independent practice because I think that is something that our community deserves. But I also want us to be cautious of how we're navigating this space by arguing back by saying, no, we're all well-trained. That may not be fully true. Let's speak to what we do and what we've done, but also how we can become better as practitioners as well. Yes, absolutely. And I also have advocated in my state of Tennessee to my legislators about allowing nurse practitioners to have full practice authority in this state because I believe in it as well. I do believe that there should be some mandated clinical hours that are required in that way. It's just something that is we know we have confidence that they they have full practice authority and they've got the clinical hours and the the mentorships, as you were talking about, to back it up so we can have full confidence in yeah. them. I know people will feel how they will feel about this conversation. And I think that's okay. I think that we it's a nuanced thing. There's no one way that we are going to convince people that we deserve to be in this space. But I do want us to really identify when that shift began to happen and how fast many states were crossing the independent practice authority line and now a lot of resistance that we're receiving and how we can kind of counteract that by just being more transparent and clear about the process of how we're creating practitioners to serve in the community and care for these patients. Well, this has just been a really fascinating Badner story. I've just really enjoyed this conversation. I've It's been one that I've really wanted to talk about for a while now. And I feel like this was the perfect opportunity to sort of br- bring up the kind of um, the dirt, the dirty side of it, you know, things that bad things happen. I say that all the time in this podcast. That's why it's called Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. We like to, I say, shine a light in the darkness, talk about it. We don't like to bury a head in the sand and pretend like bad things don't happen. Let's talk about it, get it out there and talk about how we can make things better. With graduation season already in motion, now is the time to plan for the next steps in your career. When I began my career, I remember feeling so vulnerable. That's why I recommend checking out the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program is tailored to support newly graduated nurses and ease that first-year anxiety. With benefits like continued education, including state-of-the-art simulation training, student loan assistance and tuition reimbursement, endless career growth opportunities, and more. Plus, HCA Healthcare gives you the opportunity to advance your career in one of the largest healthcare systems in the country, and you'll have support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Don't 
wait, students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I guess we can... Get on to our good nurse segment. I'm so excited about this. I've been dying to get to talk to you, and I wanted to, to um, be sure and re- get this recorded because I want everybody to be able to hear all about your experience of becoming transitioning from a nurse to a lawyer. And your platform is called Your yes, Nurse Lawyer yes, on social yes, media. Yes. Tell everybody about all of that. So I was a nurse for three or four years before I went to law school. I wanted to expand my career. A lot of my colleagues and a lot of my friends were going to nurse practitioner school or CRNA school. And I knew I wanted to do something different just because I felt like everybody was doing the same thing. And I've always been that kind of person, like, oh, I don't want to do what everyone else is doing. And so I started looking into public policy and how healthcare was impacted by politics and policy, which I don't think we talk about a lot in nursing school. We talk a lot about healthcare and like the legalities of health, but we don't talk about policy and where that comes from. Like, why do we have to do this many assessments or why do we have to document in this way? We don't really talk about that. And so I started to have questions as to why people weren't getting access to basic care And then during that time, the Affordable Care Act was coming out and there was a lot of information about healthcare policy, but the people who were providing the care had no idea about it, right? Nurses, physicians, even anesthesiologists had very strong opinions, but they really didn't understand how the policies were being made because they weren't being made by us. They were being made by people in, you know, by Congress and the people in state and local government. And I felt that that was wrong. Like, how can you govern everything that we do without our input, without our insight, without understanding the impact on our patients? Because if you're asking us to do more and it's required, like, why are we not able to talk about that? And so I wanted to get a public policy degree. I ended up going to law school. I stayed in D.C. I worked in D.C. for a while. I couldn't find a job when I graduated law school. A lot of people, when I would go to interviews, would say, well, why would a nurse become a lawyer? I don't see how the two correlate. And these are federal government jobs that serve healthcare. The VA is telling me they don't understand how a nurse be- would become a lawyer and how the two... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Which shows that people don't understand the impact of their policies, right? Because my, I have friends who work for the VA. The VA is so behind when it comes to all of the things that they've documented. And so people trying to get disability or people trying to get any type of care from the VA. Delay, delay, delay. Of course, a nurse deserves to be a part of that policy conversation. And so I ended up getting back into healthcare because I needed a job. I needed to make money, pay my student loans. 
And I worked in hospice. I worked in a telemetry unit. I worked in a lot of different places. I managed the FQHC. And I kind of had put my legal desires to the side because I, I couldn't figure out how to put it all together. I wanted to work with patients and providers. I wanted to protect both patients and providers. I wanted to educate patients and providers. And people are saying to me, it doesn't work that way. You have to pick a side. Either you're going to be a defense attorney or, so, or you're going to be a plaintiff attorney. Either you're going to do medical malpractice or personal injury. Either you're going to work in the hospital or you're going to work in the community. There was no crossover. And I'm saying that doesn't sit well with me. How can I help healthcare practitioners become better if they don't know what they're doing wrong? And how can I empower patients to speak up, to ask questions if they don't even know what to ask for? And who's bridging that gap? And so... I decided, I launched my law practice in 2017, decided I didn't, I wasn't happy. I couldn't figure out how to put it all together. And then the pandemic happened. I decided to become a travel nurse so that I could think I had more time. I worked my little three or four shifts. Then I spent my days trying to figure out my business. I had more support. My husband was home to care for my kids. And I relaunched my practice in 2020, working with nurses and nurse practitioners who were opening up businesses. Because not only was there a deficit in, you know, what to do when you open up a business, but it's also like, how do I stay in compliant? But also how do I get clients? How do I pay myself? Who, how do I find a, a tax attorney? How do I find a CPA? It's just a world that nobody gives us access to. And when I talk about nurses and nurse practitioners starting businesses, it's not just about the skills. I say some of y'all are so skilled and so talented, but when it comes to business, you're lost because nobody has given us that opportunity. There are no business classes in nursing. There are no business classes in MP programs. They're not even offering dual degree programs or bridge programs to give people the opportunity to understand the how. And so the more I learned about the problems of nurses and nurse practitioners in business, and the more people were jumping into it blindly, just thinking like, I'm going to take my skills and start a business and make money, I realized that there was a huge gap. And so um, I started working on some different tools and resources for on the business side. But then there were still thousands, millions of nurses still working at the bedside who had questions about the legalities of nursing. And like, how do I document? What should I document? What would I be held liable for? How do I get out of a lawsuit? Answering all of those questions questions. And then what do I do if I'm in a situation, but I'm feeling pressure to make a decision that I know isn't really aligned with what I want to do? And so I did dozens of webinars, built out a couple of courses. So I have a course called the Healthcare Provider's Guide to Mitigating Malpractice. And it speaks to all practitioners. It's not just for nurses or nurse practitioners, but of course, everything I do, I create with nurses and nurse practitioners in mind, but it talks about the different ways in which you navigate the legal aspects of nurse of, of, of healthcare. Because nobody is telling us when you get named in a lawsuit, how do you leverage your way out? What is the leverage? How do you ask the right questions to the insurance company? What questions should you ask the insurance company? Who else should you be able to speak to who should you trust in the situation? Who should you give away information to? And then when should you not? And so I ran into a lot of people and mostly nurse practitioners who had gotten to a situation where they weren't the primary care provider, but they were a part of the team and somehow their name got into a lawsuit and they weren't able to get it out. And now their name has you know, been reported and they had to deal with that. And they were like, now what? Right? What happens after that? Nobody talks about the emotional toll that comes with being named in a lawsuit when you are a good provider, when you have done your best, when you have shown up and done the work and cared for your patient and documented appropriately and did the best you could and still had a bad outcome. Nobody talks about that. And so I created that course specifically to cover that. But then there were some people who just wanted to talk about documentation. They didn't care about all of the other aspects. And so I created a course called the Documentation Guide to the 
documentation to avoid litigation. And that course, I specifically get into the nitty gritty of what should you document? How should you document? Why should you document these things? Why you shouldn't over-document? That over-documenting is actually what gets most people in trouble. And then the other under-documenting, how it then shows that there is a problem in your organization. And I'm actually working on a malpractice case for another attorney where there's so many gaps in the in in the documentation that they they're going to get dragged. The whole organization is going to get dragged because you didn't document anything. Nothing. Like you're telling me nothing needed to be documented for this person. And how do you balance that? Because you have people who are old school who are saying document everything and you're documenting everything. And then you have people who are a uh, new school who are like, well, I, I don't have time for that. But there's a middle. There is a balance that allows you to be a good practitioner to care for your patient, but to also document the care you're providing. And then people wanted more tangible resources like, OK, can I get some examples? And so I built out a... um a guide for providers and a guide for nurses that says, okay, if you're in this situation, then you should escalate this here. If you're in this situation, you should escalate it here. And kind of gave some tangible ways to document. For nurse practitioners and physicians and midwives, I specifically said, okay, this is the expanded soap. It's not something I created, but I created a template so that it can be then copied and pasted and put into their EMR system so that they can build out their notes a little bit easier. And so all of the digital courses that I've created for those at the bedside were simply answering questions that I received consistently that I could I can't answer a thousand questions in my DMs every single day about the same topics over and over. And so it's for some people the the cost it's I think one of my highest costs is at 247 and the lowest is at like $66. And so I know the cost may be prohibitive for some, but it's valuable to know what you know and to be confident in what you know because when somebody comes up and says, "Oh no, can you document this?" you can say to yourself, I know that's not right, and I know why that's not right, and I know why I'm not going to do that. Um, and so that's kind of what how I also serve and take care of my nurses and nurse practitioners who are still working in direct patient care because I, there's so many more of the of us there than there are in business. But then there's this burgeoning and blooming business side of healthcare for small business owners who are nurses and nurse practitioners that is just growing astronomically. And I believe that nurses are amazing. Nurse practitioners are amazing business owners because we can communicate. Business is all about communications, about systems thinking, and about how building out a business that fits your life and your lifestyle. We have so many times been put into situations where we got to work 12 hours, we got to work three days, we got you have all of these requirements. But when you build a business, you don't need to put that same pressure on yourself. And so now I've taught my, all of my clients, over 50, 60 clients and hundreds of people who I've consulted with and thousands of people who I've taught webinars to about building a sustainable and profitable business that you love. It really goes against the grain of everything that it is to be a nurse. It talks about not the patient, but you first. We talk about your desires and what is most important to you and the impact and change that you want to have on your community or, or on whatever type of business that you are starting. And I teach you how to create a system that allows you to build the momentum to, to then generate the revenue, to leverage more opportunities, and then you know just create the life that you love. And so I have what's called the Healthcare Business Starter Kit for those who are serving patients in the medical aesthetics world, 
primary care and even therapists have now gotten into this world. So I have a lot of therapy clients as well, which gives them all the compliance tools that you need. If you're going to be investigated by the Department of Health or the pharmacy board or the med- medical board or even the board of nursing, you want to have all your ducks in a row because they, if they ask you for something, you have less than two weeks to get it to them. And if you have to hire a lawyer, a lawyer is going to charge you a lot of money. And so people get access to all of the compliance tools that they need. It's the foundation. I tell people it's the floor, not the ceiling. This is the beginning of your business where you start off building and growing, but many business owners who have been business for years don't even have the basic um, elements of compliance. And so we give them access to that. I update them. Right now, there's a huge conversation happening in the business world about data privacy that's also bleeding into the healthcare world. But healthcare practitioners aren't talking about the new requirements of data privacy and HIPAA and all these things in the implementation world. And so I'm ensuring that my clients have access to that information, real world trainings, real world resources, that they understand what they need to be doing on their websites, on their social media, with their clients, with their patients, and so that they can also be protected, which I think is super important. And so as a business owner, you're protecting the business and your license, which is not something that we're used to. We're only worried about our license, but you now have an expansion of responsibility. And in order to do that, you don't have time to stop and learn how to be a business owner. And so this allows you to kind of do that as well. So I do dozens of consultations a month. I do business audits for established business owners. And then I provide the resources resources and tools so that uh, my nurses and nurse practitioners can be successful as they build their business. Wow, that is what a huge gap you filled because I know there was, I've never heard of anything like that. The years that I've been on social media following different types of nurse businesses and the years that I've been a nurse, I've never heard of anything like this. And yet, I see all these nurses on social media that I'm so impressed with starting these businesses. Lots of different, like you mentioned, nurse aesthetics and all of the the different types of things that nurses are getting into. So exciting. Even coaching and therapy, like you were saying. So what a, a huge gap that you've been able to fill with this. So valuable. I really appreciate you um, stepping up to provide the service to people. You're such a great educator and so good at explaining things in a nice you know, way that just makes perfect sense. And hopefully uh, people listening to this, I I know there's probably lots of nurses that listen to this that are wanting to go into business. It's probably very overwhelming. So this is a great opportunity for you guys to look up your nurse lawyer, look up your Ernest Williams and go. What is your website for them to be able to get access? Yeah, it's ErnesteWilliams.com. I am on all social media platforms. I have a YouTube page that has like little tidbits about business as well. If you're just trying to figure it out, you just kind of say, okay, what what else do I need to know? And it gives you those resources and tools as well. I have so much free information out there. So for those of you who aren't ready to commit to the process or to ready to hire someone, there's a lot of good information that's not going to lead you you know, astray. That's going to say, okay, this is what you need. These are the basics. And when you're ready and need some support here, this is how I can help. Wonderful. You You guys definitely need to check that out. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and helping me navigate through this conversation about nurse practitioners and then just educating our listeners that are maybe thinking about going into business and even just not even just going into business. I mean, just documenting what you talked about, documenting how important that is just as a bedside nurse to understand about documenting what you need to document, not over documenting and giving giving lawyers some something to grab onto. <laughs> I think one of the things I really want nurses to take away, whether in business or still in direct patient care, is confidence. Many of us lack confidence because we're just so used to being pulled in so many different directions and starting over by changing specialties. It's like we're constantly having to rebuild our confidence over time. And then it's like, 
everybody doesn't want to stay at the bedside for a decade or 15 or 20 years. And so it talks about how do you build your confidence when you want to become the best you? And it has nothing to do with just being a nurse. And it has a lot to do with doing that inner work of figuring out what you're good at and doing more of that and then finding the support of the things that you're not really good at. I really encourage you guys to check out some of the resources and tools. I have a free ebook that talks about my transition from being a nurse to not just being a lawyer, but to take that into starting a business. And it gives you that insight of like, how do you do it? What do you, you don't just wake up one day and say, this is what I want to do. It's the steps that you need to take, the people that you hire, the courses you, you invest in and things like that, which I think is super important so that people aren't wasting their time and money on things that aren't going to get them to the next level. So, And you can find her at Your Nurse Lawyer on social media and ErnestWilliams.com. And that's I-R-N-I-S-E Williams.com. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a powerful conversation. I really hope that we as a profession can continue to grow and expand who we are and what we do. And I think that that's going to be happening a lot more and more years to come with our advocacy and, and your advocacy and opening up these spaces to have these difficult conversations. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. I love to be able to show our listeners all different types of nurses that are out there, the different things you can do with your degree and the different avenues that you can go down with your nursing career. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm getting so much better at the social media thing. I've When I first started, I'd be like, you can follow me on social media, but I would mm-hmm. barely be on there. So now I'm actually get, being active. I'm putting our videos, little clips of our videos on there. And I'm doing a lot more speaking engagements, starting to put those things out there for people to see. So follow me on social media, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Facebook. And you can that we have a Facebook page, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on yes, TikTok. Oh, my goodness. It. At my age, I'm on TikTok. It's a lot of information out there, and that's where people are going to find it. So we got to show up wherever they are. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can email me if you'd like at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You guys know I love to hear from you. Send me your stories. Give me your feedback. I love hearing from all of you. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.